You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Jim, you've actually been the, the most frequent guest that we've had now in, in retrospect. Um, Golly. I'm, yeah, isn't that great? I've, I've got my friend Jim Kunstler back. I feel bad because we were going to chat this last summer about your latest book. Your latest book is the, the fourth installment of the World Made by Hand series. It's called The Heroes of Spring. We were going to chat this summer, and my fault has been completely my schedule. It didn't happen. I got a hold of you. You're kind enough to come on now. How you doing? Well, Welcome hey, back. Chuck, yeah. That's okay. You waited until it uh, you know, it goes out of print and and <laughs> it's only available in the discontinued merchandise bin of the Walmart. Uh, that makes me sad. I loved it. No, I I'm just saying I I'm goofing on you. I actually uh, it, it's still in print. Yeah. Don't worry. All right. Well, I enjoyed it. I have to tell you, I, I don't know if I told you this before or not, but I've all of the World Made by Hand books I have done on audiobook. And that's really fun. The, the narrator that did your book is a, is really good and really brought the characters to life. And I, I have fun doing fiction on audiobook. I don't know if you do that yourself, but I thought it was a great, I thought it was a great I have book. not done it, uh, very much, uh, but I met the guy whose name is Jim Meskimen at a conference in Monterey. It was a, a Ted-like conference. Uh, I forget exactly what the name of it was, but it was kind of a blast to meet the guy. He's done all four of the World Made by Hand books, and, and uh, he's a really great mimic. He does, you know, impressions of politicians and actors and stuff. So he's, he's a great voice guy, and I'm glad he did it. Yeah. Have you had a chance to listen to the audiobook? I've listened to it here and there, but not really all the way through. I listen to a lot of audiobooks, and, and occasionally I will do a fiction one. And, and I have to say, there's a few of them out there, and, and the gentleman who did yours is, is one of them. There's an art to actually capturing the voices. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. They're not just reading the book. They're actually act, it's, it's like they're acting it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Of course. But, uh, you know, my books are, in a way, they, they are kind of constructed cinematically, in terms of, you know, a lot of vivid scenes strung together uh, without a whole lot of explaining and exposition in between. So, you know, they're, they're, they're made that way. Well, can you, for the, for the people who have not listened to our prior, because I think we did a podcast on the last two, I'd like to give people an opportunity to learn about the world made by hand in Union Grove. Can you just give us the, you know, the, the backdrop of where this book takes place in in the future? Yeah, the overview. Yeah. Well, um, uh, uh, it's interestingly, it uh, takes place in an American small town. This one happens to be in in my corner of the country in upstate New York. The town is called Union Grove. It takes place in a a time, you know, uh, I don't know, a decade or two, or maybe a little bit more ahead in the future when uh, there's been a lot of destruction to the um, American economy and politically the United States has kind of disintegrated into several competing and warring regions. New England and, and, and upstate New York is kind of cut off from, from everything and they don't get a whole lot of information. Uh, the electricity has gone out permanently uh, and the internet with it. 
and you know most of the trade relations that uh, enabled us to funnel this cornucopia of products into the Walmarts, and that's all over with. And the um, happy motoring era is done, and people are uh, you know ha- have to uh, get around on in wagons with horses and stuff. When my first volume of the series came out, and that one was called World Made by Hand, that was the title. A lot of people complained that the characters weren't riding bicycles, but when I wrote the book, it was pretty clear to me early on that, first of all, the pavements of the roads and the streets would probably be in very poor shape after years of inattention and, and you know no maintenance. And it also occurred to me that uh, most of the alloy metals and and rubber and other materials that you need to fix bicycles and and make them would probably not be available the supply chains would be broken so a lot of people assume that making a bicycle is an easy thing but making you know a modern bicycle that is light and rides pretty well and and is durable and made out of durable metals that's another matter so no they're not riding bicycles finally the 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 village of union grove functions in a way as kind of uh, an additional character itself and uh, the relationships between the people who who live in it have to be redefined in this new economy in this new world where people have new roles or or roles that have have been lost in our time social and economic roles and so that's where we're at with the world made by hand series in this one, there are two main kind of conflicts or, or things that are being dealt with. The first one kind of centers around trade. I want to get to that one in a second, but I want to start with the Brookshire People's Republic, this group of itinerant wandering people that show up and kind of, you know, create a, another round of conflict that uh, has to be dealt with. I suspect I know the answer, but I, I want to, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about it. What inspired this group for you? And can you describe them a little bit and, and how they play a pivotal role in this book? Well, in the previous volume, the third installment of World Made by Hand, which was called A History of the Future, I basically lampooned the political right. Uh, I set up a situation where the nation had broken into these different regions, and one of them was a breakaway kind of teabagger country that called itself the Foxfire Republic, centered in in Tennessee and and Kentucky and the Carolinas and a few other states. And they were uh, at perpetual war with the uh, deep south states of Dixieland, which which had become another separate country. So, you know, I I kind of lampooned the, the extreme right wing in that one. So in the next volume and the final fourth and final one, The Harrows of Spring, I decided to bring the the left on stage. And this happened to coincide with the uh, high point of agitation, especially on the college campuses of the social justice warriors, especially their kind of Maoist uh, behavior their Maoist uh, uh, struggle behavior, as it used to be called during the Cultural Revolution in China back in the 60s, where uh, Mao Zedong had unleashed Chinese youth on the rest of society, and they went around the whole country punishing people and ridiculing them and and destroying their careers and killing them in some instances. And and this was how I equated the out-of-control behavior of the college kids in in this moment of history today. 
And uh, I wanted to lampoon them. So I created this Berkshire People's Republic centered in uh, western Massachusetts, kind of a hotbed of the left. Uh, they have come to my little town of Union Grove under the uh, false auspices of creating a, a New England federation. But the, what they're really after is trying to grift uh, the silver coinage money out of the the people who live in Union Grove in exchange for their phony uh, Berkshire buck paper money. And so that uh, grifting operation is at the center of, of the struggle. Things kind of come to grief for them in, you know, in this uh, campaign of theirs. To me, one of the very fascinating things about the, the series itself is how these different groups of people kind of coalesce to have very different ways of dealing with this struggle. You've got the Stephen Bullock, excuse me, and, and his farm and kind of the, the plantation strongman approach. You've got, you know, the people of Union Grove, which I, I, interestingly, you described them as another character. I, I think that that is a, an apt description. You've got the, the new faithers, you know, brother Job and his group. And now you've got this fourth group. I'd like you to describe a little bit how you, kind of envision people dealing with this struggle in different ways. I felt like that was an important point you were trying to make. For one thing, I had to imagine how uh, a post-industrial economy would arrange itself. And one of the possibilities, of course, was a kind of return to feudalism, you know, where the capable people would would organize a way of carrying on civilized life uh, in the absence of a, of the armature for that that has now disappeared you know the corporate armature the government you know all the other things that we hang our lives on so i imagine stephen bullock as being kind of a a new style feudal lord and he's very conscious of it and people talk about it and he you know he even discusses it but he's self-conscious about it and and he's uncomfortable with his role although he's determined to to act and to to carry out his duties and do what he has to and he's running a plantation of thousands of acres amalgamated out of the property of the other people around him who have failed to you know failed to uh, adapt to the the new economy and especially the new agricultural economy because another feature of the world made by hand life is that uh, farming and agriculture has come back to the center of economic life and the the people who are rich now are the people who are successful farmers actually not unlike how what america was like at its inception you know at the the late 18th early 19th century so that's one way of organizing life there are other wealthy farmers who uh, are characters in the story and uh, sometimes brought on stage sometimes just just alluded to they operate a bit differently mr bullock Stephen Bullock has got all of his people uh, relocated onto a little village he's created for them on his property. The other farmers basically use the, the, the people who live in, in Union Grove as day laborers, and they just walk out to the farms and work every day. You know, they work on shares or, or, or they have some other arrangement for getting paid in one way or another, and they make do and, and get on. So that's one group, the farmers. You know, then there is the New Faith Covenant Brotherhood Church of Jesus, which is an evangelical gang that's moved from Virginia and the disorders of Dixieland, which I describe frequently in the book, 
And they've come north to this uh, quiet corner of upstate New York to uh, found their so-called New Jerusalem and live in tranquility and peace. And what they've, you know, it's about 85 people and they've, they've taken over the old high school, which is not being used anymore. They've bought it from the town and they're turning it into a kind of giant commune. And they're led by this character named Brother Job, who's uh, a weird combination of, you know, being kind of a comic character, but also rather dark. I like to describe him as Boss Hogg meets Captain Ahab. But it turns out that, you know, as the book goes on, it turns out that he is uh, quite a reliable character and, and, and a good person. There's him and his group, and then there are the townspeople. And, you know, as a contrast to the new faith people who live in a kind of re-enchanted world, a semi-supernatural uh, religiosity, the townspeople have been kind of stripped of all the supports of their belief system, mainly by being let down by the promises of science and technology, and with it all the baggage of the enlightenment that really characterized the modern world, uh, including, you know, the, the belief in empiricism and logical positivism and the proofs and demonstrations of science. And they've been let down by all that because they, you know, they remember that world of, of the Walmart and the automobile and rocket ships and, and, uh, you know, the internet and the wonders of the iPhone. They remember all that stuff, but it's gone now. And they've been kind of abandoned and, and they're, they're forlorn and bereft now and kind of depressed. And finally, you know, in the Harrows of Spring, uh, they are invaded by this group, this kind of vestigial group of social justice warriors from the Berkshire People's Republic who are really a bunch of grifters, but are pretending to be, you know, ideologically superior and pure. So that's the layout of the Harrows of Spring and to some extent, you know, the layout of all four books. You have a history of studying cults. And I actually found that really fascinating because when I look at the new faithers and the very first book, you set them up kind of mysterious. And, and, and by the, by the last one, not only is brother Job, like a guy, I kind of find him to be, to me, I think he's your best character. I think he's a character you've developed in the most unique way, but they actually are the good guys. I mean, they, they, they do a lot of really good things. You had this other communal work, and I don't know if you'd call the Berkshire People's Republic a cult. They they kind of feel like one in a sense, maybe not you know religiously aligned, but you know communal. How did your study of cults kind of inform and and maybe kind of push you a little bit towards including those kind of groups in this narrative? Well, when I was a young newspaper reporter in the nineteen early nineteen seventies. One of the things that was going on in this country was that a lot of young people, people my age then, were being sucked into religious cults. I became very interested in it as a reporter. I investigated a number of them, and I didn't go underground or anything. I didn't pretend to be a member, but, you know, I, I was pretty persistent, and I spent a lot of time around various groups and, and the people in them. The thing that was most noticeable was that Coming out of this tumultuous period of the 1960s, a lot of young people were really kind of lost psychologically. They really needed something or someone to direct their lives and, and in, you know, in a lot of cases, actually push them around and, and tell them what to do. 
so when I tried to imagine what life would be like in, you know, in a, in a post-economic collapse future, um, I returned to that uh, and returned to that, that experience and that knowledge. And, and I realized that people would, would have a lot less to hang their lives on, you know, in this world made by hand, there's no more corporate life. You know, you can't, you can't hang your life on some corporate job and all of the uh, benefits and emoluments that come out of it. The courts are not operating. The law is not operating. So you can't hang your life on that. Uh, the schools are not operating. So you can't hang your life on that. So there's not a whole lot left except sort of the, the vestigial uh, religious infrastructure of the community. The actual townspeople of Union Grove, the, the, not the ones who belong to the New Faith Brotherhood, but the, the regular people, their lives sort of revolve around, you know, the farms where they work and their families and the uh, congregational church. They're not mostly religious, but they need some place that is an organizing principle in their life. And that turns out to be the congregational church led by the, their pastor, their, their minister, Lauren Holder. And he's, uh, in some ways, uh, a very troubled character who goes through a lot of changes in, in all four of the books. But he, you know, he ends up being a person of strength and character and, and uh, uh, is able to, to serve the people. You know, with the, the new faith cult that has come to town from actually far away from really kind of another culture. You know, that was another matter. I had to imagine them differently. And, uh, you know, they are evangelical Christians. They, they seem to have a, uh, uh, a fairly liberal attitude about things like drinking, dancing, and uh, free love. You can make the inference that there's a lot of uh, sexual action going on in the cult, although I almost never really, uh, you know, lay it out in, in a graphical way. But there are a lot of kind of scenes and allusions to it. The thing about them is that they are very well organized. They're earnest. Uh, they are able to discharge uh, their obligations faithfully. They're able to make things happen and do things like fix the village water system and, uh, you know, help the people start reestablishing some businesses in their on their main street. And, you know, so anyway, they end up being a lot more benign, actually, than many of the cults that I investigated when I was a young guy. Um, but that's how I came to it. It was interesting to me because, you know, I, I've thought about the Middle Ages when religion at the very local level, I mean, you, you had the Catholic Church as this omnipresent kind of thing that, uh, you know, in many ways was, was despotic to, to regular people. But at, at the local level, you know, the church was this organizing function. It was fascinating to me how in the future, as you kind of envision it in this book, you again kind of see those roles emerging. There's a casual reference every now and then, you know, one of the new faithers will say, you know, hey, do you know Jesus? <laughs> and everybody kind of rolls their eyes and then you just move on to the next thing. They don't seem to belabor it too much, but they do seem to, you know, find like an organizing principle around essentially a belief system that is part of who they are, I guess. Yeah, I, I happen to not be religious myself. I'm, you know, culturally Jewish on, on both sides of my family, uh, but not particularly religious. In the book, the new faithers are frequently, you know, 
asking the people who they come into contact with whether they believe and whether they know Jesus, et cetera, et cetera. The, the reason I did that was to show that a lot of the people that they solicit actually uh, say, no, they don't, and they're not interested. Right, right. Uh, but, but the reason for that is not to, you know, not to dump on the Christians. It's, it's to indicate how demoralized the, uh, the regular people are by the losses that they've suffered. That was kind of my point, too. You, you kind of get the sense that the new faithers actually do pretty well in your world. Yeah, they're uh, thriving. Yeah, because they're kind of working together. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they're working together. But also, you know, another feature of this, which maybe I didn't articulate clearly a, a few minutes ago, is that, uh, you know, I wanted to illustrate the competing worldviews between between uh, a group of people who, you know, do have faith, who are living in a kind of re-enchanted, semi-supernatural world, uh, and those are the new faithers, and the attitudes and psychology of the townspeople who are depressed, beaten down, and uh, have almost nothing to believe in anymore. Personally, I, I don't think that I would recommend becoming, um, you know, deeply religious as a as a way of getting through life. But, you know, I'm trying to illustrate what probably happens to people, you know, when they meet adversity and hardship. Right. It's interesting because money plays probably a bigger role in this book than any of your prior three. Uh, you've talked a little bit about trading silver in some of the prior books, but in this one, you actually have this, this group, you call them grifters, the, uh, the Berkshire people's Republic who, who are there essentially selling their own currency, right? They're, 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 yeah, they're trying to get, they're trying to get the people of union Grove to exchange their silver for Berkshire paper currency uh, with the promise that they're going to form this new political federation that is going to start reviving their culture and, you know, bringing back uh, the old uh, the old days when America was great and not really as explicitly as Trump. And, and frankly, you know, I finished the book before Trump was really rampant. That's the promise that the Berkshire people are holding out, that they're going to sort of reform a New England confederacy and uh, succeed more and, and attend to things like public works and stuff. But it's all a scam. And what they're really trying to do is just get silver in exchange for worthless paper money. Well, you know, one of the reasons I did that was because we're having a struggle now with money in not just the USA, but, but the global economy. As uh, we've suffered from a few years of currency wars, and we're probably heading into uh, a period of pretty major financial disruption and banking disruption where, you know, currencies are going to get to trouble. And so are all the instruments associated with them, like stocks, bonds, and, and everything else. People are going to be um, facing some serious problems with money. So, you know, I, I wanted to uh, underscore this so that people would, you know, be aware of, of how important uh, money is as the kind of the bloodstream of any kind of economy. The financial elite in this country have for a long time suggested that, you know, things like metals, gold and silver, uh, which you reference in the book, you know, they're not currency today and they're certainly not currency. They're, they're, they don't have intrinsic value beyond what you would use for a, you know, a wedding band or a ring or, you know, a trinket. I kind of just patently reject that notion in a modern sense. But then when I'm reading your book, I found myself thinking, well, okay, today people would have you know, use for silver, 
But in a world made by hand, what, what use for silver would they have? Like, why, why would they bother trading in that? Like, why would that be a useful commodity to them as opposed to, you know, there's times in the books where people trade ham and uh, eggs and, and other things that seem to me more tangible to them. I'm not trying to get too deep into it if you weren't trying to, but I, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what value you think that the pieces of silver would essentially have to them and, and why they would find some value there. Well, it's a legitimate question, and and uh, it's an important question. And, you know, I think the answer is that silver, precious metal, and gold, which are, are both used in the, in the books, uh, would fulfill the roles that they have fulfilled for thousands of years, and that is as a store of value and a medium of exchange, a way of uh, measuring the value, an index uh, of the value of things and, and goods. And those are the three roles that money, in quotation marks, plays and has played from time immemorial. And in the book, uh, people are using gold and silver, but, you know, according to Gresham's law, which is, uh, you know, a law of the behavior of money, the less valuable money, the silver, will drive out the more valuable money, gold. And by drive out, what that means is prompt people to hoard it and take it out of circulation. And that's pretty much how money behaves in a world made by hand is the the general circulating currency is silver coin gold appears from time to time when the people have to purchase large things like boats but on the whole it's hoarded and um you know silver coin and there is a great deal of uh, pre-1965 90 percent silver coin in america still it's it is not circulated but you know people people are collecting it now the virtue of it is that uh, it's fairly portable you know it's not hard to carry around it's not that heavy it's broken up into small denominations that can be spent easily like you know a silver dime in in world made by hand will buy you you know uh, uh, five pounds of pears or you know uh, uh, a sack of flour etc so that's why I, I arrange things the way I did one of the issues in the book that was dealt with was the issue of trade and the idea that Stephen Bullock as the, the strong man, the guy who has the, the thousands of acres was essentially turning his back on trade. Uh, he didn't need it. Well, to he had been, his establishment is located on the, the confluence of, of uh, the Hudson river and the Battenkill river, a tributary stream. He had a trade boat that was making trips back and forth to Albany, New York, the capital, which, you know, was still a, a, a town a bit more substantial than Union Grove. And, uh, you know, and was at the confluence of the Erie Canal and the Hudson River estuary. And, and uh, you know, he was bringing back trade goods to Union Grove as a kind of service to the town and, and to himself because he needed supply. He's, he's kind of gone, gone to war with the, the village for, you know, for over some petty matters and he's kind of a grumpy guy he's he's easily disturbed kind of an angry an angry dude so he's in this book he's discontinued his his Hudson River trade boat and uh the town has to find some other way to uh, get their goods talk a little bit about just trade in a world made by hand you know today when we hear people talk about and you're friends with Chris Martinson. I really enjoy his podcast too and his work. And, and I've, I've had him on in the past. You talk about individual resiliency and becoming more self-sufficient. 
yet it, it's pretty clear in a world made by hand that there'd have to be some trade. There'd have to be some, uh, you know, exchange of goods. You know, from the very first book where you had the, the people who would mine the garbage dump, essentially, now to, you know, this more sophisticated trading system. It, it seems like you've included that all along the way here. You're right. I, and, and I did have to try to imagine how people would get stuff. Now, one thing to consider is that the way we get our stuff now is, is so extraordinary and, and so unprecedented. Uh, you know, with our 12,000 mile supply lines between the factories in Guangzhou and the Walmart in Philadelphia or Minneapolis, you know, bringing us this endless supply of uh, sheetrock screws and uh, corn poppers and, and uh, microwave ovens and flat screen TVs and, you know, every other thing that we imagine. That is a very extraordinary and anomalous system. And, and yet the American public are completely i mean that's their reality now that to them that's the only thing that they've ever experienced and it would be rather hard for them to imagine not having that in place uh, and that was exactly what i had to do imagine what it would be like to not have the, the those massive global supply lines there so you know the next question is well how does an economy work that has to be regionally and locally focused and you know one of the answers to that is, you know, you have to look at the historic patterns and, and things that have happened and the existing trade routes. One of, one of my personal beliefs, you know, in my nonfiction, you know, and uh, listeners may not know it, but I'm the author of several nonfiction books about the collapse of the American economy. One was called The Long Emergency. Follow up to it was called Too Much Magic, Wishful Thinking, Technology and the Fate of the Nation. You know, one of the ideas that I tried to get across in that was that in the event that the global economy unwound through some set of circumstances, we would be left in a North American economy that was much more internally focused. And of course, in the book, uh, a lot of other pieces of the modern uh, system are now missing. You know, we, there is no more long range trucking. You know, there are no big box store distribution systems. All that's gone. And so, you know, I had to imagine how people would make out with what they could produce locally and what they might be able to get from a distance away. And in the book, of course, they're located on one of the major inland waterways. And, uh, and the way I looked at it was that life would reorganize in North America around the inland waterways, which are really kind of a marvelous system, but one that we've been overlooking for about, you know, 100 years. And so they're on the Hudson River system, which connects ultimately through the Champlain Canal to the St. Lawrence River and by the Erie Canal to the Great Lakes. The third book in the series, The History of the Future, included a journey down the Erie Canal and, and in through the Great Lakes to illustrate how things were going there. And uh, in all the books, there is a certain amount of trade that is going on from, you know, coming in from other parts of the Northeast and, and even as far away as the Midwest. One of the issues is that, you know, because historically it's been hard to grow wheat in New England because of an endemic uh, plant disease called wheat rust that's uh, very hard to get rid of and it's kind of in the soil and associated with, 
with a lot of other plants, especially, you know, alien wildflowers from, from Europe. This wheat rust has made it difficult for people to grow wheat. So, so wheat is rather uh, hard to get in Union Grove. And they, you know, they have to go to some lengths to get it. They have to go to Albany to get it. You know, it's coming down uh, the Erie Canal from western New York and elsewhere. And, uh, you know, these are other issues that I had to discuss. When my characters go to Albany this time on another boat, one of the things they encounter is, you know, there's a new establishment that's an oyster bar in the hotel in Albany, and they're getting oysters from the new oyster beds that have been formed uh, around the Tappan Zee and and, uh, other places north of New York City. And one of the things I'm trying to illustrate in that is that, you know, perhaps with the sea level rise and and, uh, climate change that, you know, we would actually see, uh, you know, different things growing in this ecosystem, that places that, that had not generally produced oysters before now would. And so things like that, uh, th- those are the kinds of things that are going on. You and I were chatting last week, just uh, offline, about some medical things that my my dad went through. And I was talking a little bit about your kind of uh, history with, it was a hip replacement you had, right? Yeah, I had a hip, I was the recipient of a uh, uh, an innovative new metal-on-metal hip prosthesis. That is, uh, you know, a ball and cup joint. A ball joint. And they introduced this thing around uh, the early 2000s. And it was supposed to be a highly durable improvement over previous metal and plastic hip implants. But it turned out that they, they didn't uh, test them in human beings adequately. And I got a pretty bad dose of cobalt and chromium poisoning from uh, the particles abrading off into my system. It was a major drag. But I'm happy to report I'm over it. A lot of the neurological problems that I was suffering because of it have have stepped back and faded away, and uh, I'm I'm very grateful that I <laughs> I was able to to get through that. It was a bummer. I want to ask you about medicine in the world made by hand because you know I I, I know you've had that experience, and it, it it seems to me like in the novel, obviously there's a there's a lot of people who get sick and there's a lot of people who have medical problems, but a lot of them are also solved. I'm wondering in the context of, you know, the whole too much magic idea and the medical industrial complex and the fact that, you know, you, you, you can't go and just talk to a doctor anymore. It's, <laughs> it's a big deal and, and there's a lot of money at stake. In some ways, you're trying to suggest here that simpler is better. Well, uh, actually, I think it's a, it's quite a bit more muddled than that. The doctor, uh, character in all the world made by hand stories. He's a, you know, an ongoing character is, is a, a, a troubled man because, you know, he was trained in the modern era, which no longer exists. And he no longer has his, at his disposal. So many, uh, the whole armamentorium of, of modern medicine, you know, he doesn't have the magical antibiotics. He doesn't have anesthesia. He's had to, uh, manufacture some of them himself you know he gets the farmers around town to grow opium for him so that he can synthesize morphine and and other uh, narcotics that he uses in his practice but he's become addicted to them himself because he's so troubled you know there are there are several scenes in the book where you know he takes uh, he steals a moment from his very very busy and, and and arduous day 
to take a walk up to the river and he sees all of the, the Canadian geese flocking on the river and he realizes, you know, this is the vector for the next great epidemic of, uh, you know, bird flu that's going to inevitably come to the town and there's nothing he can do about it. So he's a troubled guy. He helps people as much as he can. He performs some surgeries under rather adverse conditions. He's training his 12-year-old son to become a doctor. And in fact, the boy is actually treating patients himself at the age of 12. You know, he's received this kind of apprentice education from his father. And he assists his father. And uh, it's a troubling prospect. So it's not quite as cut and dry as that. But I think there's no question that the contemporary medical scene is such a horrifying matrix of racketeering and sheer cruelty, uh, despite all the magic of, uh, you know, high tech medicine, that uh, it's making a lot of people crazy. There's this part of me that feels like for 90% of, of interactions, it might be better to have a more world made by hand <laughs> medical approach. The 10%, you would definitely want the modern medicine there, but it's almost like we've taken the one end and depersonalized it to a point where it, it really is disconnected from people. Oh, it's, it's totally dysfunctional. And as I said, cruel. In, in you know the robotic treatment of pe- of people as just these you know entities to be milked of every last dime they have but you know once again i'm coming at this sort of from the the thinking that i did writing my nonfiction books about the future and what one of my thoughts was uh, it seems inevitable to me that this colossal matrix of uh, medical racketeering that we now have is going to collapse, and when it does, we're going to return to a a, a somewhat more primitive arrangement of of local clinic based medicine, where the the services may be less fantastic than than some of the magical things that you can get today in the way of you know hip implants and open heart surgery and stuff, but uh, but it'll be more hands on and personal, and I think that that that's where we're heading, and uh, you know I try to depict how it would go in world made by hand after a period of time when things had sort of settled down. Well, you, you might actually have, you know, be allowed to stay more than a day. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, when I had my, I had three hip replacements, not cause I have three hips, but because the bad one that I had had to be removed and replaced. You know, I, I probably got bills for all of them and, you know, or, or insurance statements. But I remember one in particular it was a it was a line statement from St. Peter's Hospital in Albany, and it, it had one line. It said it said thirty six hours room and board twenty three thousand dollars. You know, and this was a period. This is the post op period where you know there were no extraordinary measures taken. The only thing that they did was that you know they took my temperature and my blood pressure about you know sixteen times in the thirty six hours I was there, but nothing else. So. That's what I paid $23,000 for, or, or at least that's what the insurance got charged, 23000 bucks for being in the hospital for, for, for 36 hours. It's incredible. It, it, it's incredible, and it's, uh, it, it's horrifying and, and unsupportable. But that's where we're at. And yeah, in, ma- in world made by hand, people can stay in Dr. Copeland's clinic you know, for more than a day you know, without being charged $23,000. Right. 
Yeah. And someone will come and check on you and actually care if you're getting better. Yeah. I want to ask you a little bit about the newspaper, about Daniel Earl. I heard you say a number of times in the years past that we're all going to have to figure out a way to be useful to each other. That's kind of stuck with me. A lot of things that our jobs today are, you know, in a world maybe not very useful to each other. No, um, in fact, if you forgive me for interrupting. Yeah, no, go ahead. Not only are they not useful, but they're they're they basically exist um, to help the racketeers strip mine the remaining wealth out of our lives. Yes. Yeah. It, it was fascinating to me that. One of the things that got resurrected now in, in the third and then, you know, fully running in the fourth is a, is a newspaper. I'd like to give you an opportunity to talk about why a newspaper would fit into that kind of matrix of someone being useful to someone. Well, the people of Union Grove uh, are really starved for information, for one thing. They're not getting any news from uh, from around the country. They barely understand what's happened to the American government, which has moved its capital three or four times in the period after the, the economic calamity. But um, not only that, they don't have just the ordinary services that used to be provided by local newspapers, namely things like legal notices, uh, want ads, um, ads for, you know, all kinds of, you know, products and things that, and services that that people need. And, and so, uh, you know, in the absence of that, the commerce that's even going on locally uh, is not what it could be. And so this young man, Daniel, um, sort of um, discovers that the, the old penny saver building w w that was the, the place where the old penny saver newspaper was put out back in the 20th century. And he discovers that all the, uh, uh, the type is still there in the in the flats and the boxes and all the composing equipment and and that there's a a non electric letterpress uh, printing press that he can use and he goes about teaching himself how to put out a broadside newspaper that is you know an, a newspaper that's published on two sides of a large piece of paper that's one sheet but but is crammed with news and 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 advertising and he starts to put it together put it out. So that, that's what I was thinking. Part of writing is a discovery process. And now that you've finished these four books, and I know that was your goal to write four, one for each season, does this world that you've created feel more real to you or, or more separate for you? How, how did it change over time? And I, I guess, you know, when you start, you, you kind of had probably a fuzzy vision of how things would be. And, and, as it's gotten, you know, more contrast now, as you've, as you've kind of fleshed it out, has it become more realistic for you or has it become more of a, of a fiction for you? Well, I wouldn't say that I have boundary problems, you know, between fiction and reality. I, I do remember the difference and, and, you know, it still works for me. I still understand that yeah, I'm living no, in. No, but what I'm, what I'm really getting <laughs> no, at. No, I, I get it though, but, but you know what? Uh, one of the characteristics of, of composing fiction is that it is essentially an emergent activity in the sense that it is self-organizing. And, and in that emergent sense, you know, what is going on in a work of fiction, especially if it's elaborated over four different books, it will inform you of where it has to go and what it has to do and what it has to say. That is how it self-organizes. So, you know, it, it instructs you how to compose the next scene, 
the next set piece, the next set of dramatic incidents. And that's exactly what happens. This world made by hand uh, elaborated itself to me as I wrote it. Um, I wasn't in a trance or anything. I mean, I understood how it was happening. But uh, it's actually at the core of the process of writing fiction for anybody. And it's probably very important if you're interested in writing fiction or if there is such a thing as, even as a market for fiction in the future, which I'm not I'm not sure it'll exist in the same way that we know it in the form of novels, but we'll always have stories. If people do want to become storytellers, it's important to understand how this emergent system works and to find a way to sort of submit to it so that you can be open to being informed and, and, and having the thing itself guide you as you write it. I mean, a lot of people, I think, stumble over uh, trying to force things to happen in their fiction or trying to, you know, well, trying to force things. And, and, and in my experience, it doesn't work that way. You know, it, it's sort of an, an organism of itself that you have to have faith in and, and allow it to organize itself. Here's what I want to get at, though. You talk about the world made by hand as, as one possible destination for the future. And I, you know, I've heard you say there's, there's many ways the long emergency could go. Here's one of them that I envision. And I guess I'm wondering now that you're done, does it feel like a more realistic destination or does it feel, you know, less likely to you today than, than maybe it did when you started this process? No, I'd say that my mind has not changed about that. It seems to me to be, uh, you know, a realistic scenario for where we're headed. I'd have to add, however, that, you know, it's just one among, you know, many other competing scenarios for how things may play out because, because, you know, the world history and world events are themselves emergent and self-organizing and, and really rather unpredictable because of that. So I laid out one version of the future that was uh, most importantly to me, a plausible version of the future, something that could happen. You know, whether it's likely to happen or sure to happen is something that I, I can't say. But that's that's pretty much it. It's a plausible future. I kind of, at the end of the day, felt like it was a, a positive destination. I mean, it's it's clear that the trip along the way would not be great. But I'm, I'm wondering if you can see yourself living in a world made by hand and if, if you can see yourself being happy there. Oh, absolutely, because I had to imagine it in, you know, in the guise of the, the characters I was writing about and, and representing. So, sure, no question about it. I, uh, I, I can. Um, there are elements of it I can't vouch for working that well. I mean, I don't know, for instance, whether a doctor, a local doctor, w would have the skill or the presence of mind to, f to find a way to make his own anesthetics you know, and, and analgesics out of what was at hand in, in the countryside. You know, I can't vouch for the fact that uh, we're going to be able to trade successfully with other regions of the country. I can't vouch for the fact that uh, the United States are going to break up into the kinds of regions that I described. But, but on the whole, yeah, um, most importantly, the characters in these books are still, you know, they're not, they're not totally beaten down by, by this experience of having gone through a a terrible bottleneck of, of civilization and history. They're still capable of finding joy in the, the things they do in daily life. Um, they're eating better probably than, 
than they were back in the days of the little Debbie snack cakes and pepperoni sticks. You know, they're still finding love. Uh, they're still caring for each other. And there's a great deal about the the recession of the mediated electronic world that has proved to be very beneficial to people. You know, they're they're uh, making their own music again, and they're spending time with other people instead of imaginary characters on TV. You know, they're putting on their own plays, and they're working shoulder to shoulder with each other at things that matter to them deeply and locally. And so altogether, it seemed to me that it would be a kind of a positive development. Uh, I don't think you can overstate how crazy and frantic and punishing uh, contemporary life is to people, and to some extent, uh, in a way that, that they don't even notice anymore. So I think a world made by hand might be a very salutary place to end up. I know you're working on another fiction project. Can you talk a little bit about what's coming next for you? Well, I don't know. Uh, well, I do know because <laughs> I just finished it about three weeks ago. And um, it is a novel. Again, uh, I did want to write no another novel. I like writing fiction. And it's set in 1968 on a hippie commune in Vermont. And it's narrated by the 19-year-old uh, female protagonist. So it's, it's, a, it's a trip back in time to the hippie days which happened to be the days of my youth, uh, which was something that interested me. But, you know, importantly, perhaps, uh, you know, I'm a baby boomer and we're all getting a lot older and uh, quite a few baby boomers are checking out now. And uh, I wanted to depict this world that, of our youth before everybody checks out so that a few of us could revisit it in fiction. I'm part of your Patreon page, and I just want to give people a chance because it's it's really, I think, an important thing to be able to support people who are doing important work because the way you go about making money, you joke in the past about being a starving bohemian, but I, I think you probably did better in some of those bohemian days than writers can do today. Can you just talk a little bit about your Patreon page and, and what that's meant to you and, and how that's allowed you to do your work? Patreon is kind of a system or, or you know, uh, a, an internet app that allows uh, creators, people who, you know, put out so-called content to make a living, uh, especially in an age where it's becoming m much more difficult to make a living as a writer. In my case, you know, I do joke about being a starving bohemian back in the back in the day. And I was until I was in my 40s, you know, I. I wrote book after book. I, I, I had published eight novels and I was still waiting on tables around the late 1980s. Uh, then I wrote The Geography of Nowhere and, and uh, Home from Nowhere and et cetera. And I started to be able to make, uh, you know, a, a kind of uh, living kind of a, uh, equal to the average junior high school janitor from book royalties anyway. Then I went through a period where I was making a decent living uh, doing lectures at universities and, and conferences and stuff. And uh, a lot of that came to an end very abruptly with the rise of the social justice warriors on campus because uh, they were no longer hospitable to ideas that made them uncomfortable. And the deans and department chairs wouldn't hire people like me to, to lecture about my books. And so that all fell away. A at the same time, the publishing industry has um, changed a lot. And it's almost impossible to, you know, to make a decent living 
as a book writer unless you're, you know, a TV celebrity or an actress or or something like that. The rise of Amazon has also um, made things somewhat difficult because they take a they get a deep discount from the publishers and that discount is is passed along to us authors. So we get much uh, lower royalty. So the whole thing has been kind of a fiasco for people who want to be professional writers. Uh, and I'm try trying to be a crybaby about it or anything, but uh, Patreon was a really a, a very fortuitous thing for me because it allowed readers, especially readers of my blog and listeners of my podcast, to make uh, voluntary recurring contributions to uh, keeping my operation going, you know, in the absence of other income. And so it has really pulled me through a period when uh, my, my revenue stream was really way down and uh, I needed to find a new way to go into business. You know, a lot of us writers are having to turn into cottage industries uh, in, in order to just keep on going. And, and probably the better you can uh, navigate that, uh, the more successfully you're going to be able to operate as an independent thinker and, and writer. And uh, it's hard. You've got to learn a lot of new stuff. Um, I have a couple of people who are helping me, you know, my web manager and uh, my website host guy are helping me through a lot of the technical issues with it. And, um, you know, they, they get a cut of anything that I earn, of course, and that's how it works. Uh, that's what I'm doing. Well, for our listeners, I will post a link not only to your book, The Heroes of Spring, but also to your books, The, the Long Emergency, The Geography of Nowhere uh, too much magic, and then to your Patreon page as well. And I encourage people. Uh, yeah, the blog. Well, um, link to the blog, if you will. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that. Yeah. I read your blog every Monday. I get in and I, I, I read it. Yeah, absolutely. I don't do a ton, Jim, but I, I'm proud to be, you know, one of many people who have said this is really important stuff, and I'm glad you're out there. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah. And, and you do have some, uh, I, I don't know, you got to call them like door prizes. I think for me, you're going to like lift a glass in my honor at some point. You're giving away, uh, paintings and things too. If people get really serious. Yeah. You know, for, for major contributors, um, if they contact me, um, you know, I will send them, uh, an original work of Kunstler art. Yeah. Cause I, I am a rather serious painter in my, in my spare time. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm doing it. Well, I'm hoping that you make it to Minnesota soon or that I uh, make it to upstate New York in the spring, in the summer. I'd love to see your garden, actually. Oh, yeah. You're welcome anytime. And, and in the winter, you can ski here. You got the good hips now. You're going to go cross-country skiing, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, you come out here, and if it's not too, uh, not too subarctic, we'll, we'll go out here, too. <laughs> okay. We'll bring some <laughs> lutevisk with us to warm us up. <laughs> uh, you bet. All right. Take care, my friend. Thanks, Chuck. Yep. Thanks so much. <laughs> Bye-bye. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. We need your help. If you think the strong town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic answers, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? 
I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.